Welcome again to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton. I am the deputy editor here at Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. In this week's episode, we are doing part one with Rebecca Heinrichs. She is a fellow at the Hudson Institute, where she focuses on security issues, including deterrence and counterproliferation. So in our second issue of the print edition, she wrote an article about just war and nuclear deterrence. And so in this episode, we are going to talk to her about some of those different issues. Could you explain why did you choose to write about nuclear deterrence for Providence? Sure. The concentration of my work that I do um, as a fellow at Hudson um, and just over the last several years in various fellowship opportunities is focusing on nuclear deterrence. Nuclear weapons are still the backbone of the U.S. deterrent policy. It has been for many years, since World War II. And what that means is uh, nuclear weapons sort of undergird this national security objective, which is to deter major conflict. A lot of people think it's just to deter nuclear war, but it's actually bigger than that. It's to deter, uh, deter mass war, mass death. And over the last several decades, the United States has really had a lack of very serious critical thinking, intellectual investment in what is required for a credible, effective deterrent. So this is sort of across the board. We, we used to think about it very, very seriously, uh, obviously leading up to the Cold War and during the height of the Cold War. But over the last several decades, we've really moved away from it. And what we have seen is the this um, creeping in of this very secular uh, leftist uh, ideologically driven opposition to nuclear weapons in and of themselves. And because of this, uh, it sort of affected even the way uh, strategists think about nuclear deterrence. And so now we've seen, of course, this administration, the Obama administration, very committed to going down to zero nuclear weapons globally, with the United States taking the lead. And uh, many Christians uh, Christian denominations, Protestant denominations, of course, famously the Catholic Church, has sort of been um, my my assessment and the assessment of, of a couple of others who think about this subject, is that really these, these, these Christian thinkers have been sort of co-opted by the secular left. We, we see that happen, of course, in domestic politics, um, whether it's on marriage um, or, or other areas of the family, economic policy, etc. But what we have seen is it's actually applied in, in defense policy as well. The Catholic Church is opposed to nuclear weapons, and many Protestant mainline denominations um, who have a more uh, liberal theology as well, you've seen that they've sort of taken on this idea of the left when it comes to nuclear weapons. So, um, so I thought it would be an appropriate time to write something for Providence that sort of gave a defense of nuclear weapons from a Christian perspective using just war theory, the, the Christian tradition of just war theory, and explaining that, no, in fact, going down to smaller numbers of nuclear weapons actually increases the likelihood of mass war. And that would be unjust to do so, knowing that. And so the United States has to think very carefully about what is required to deter mass war, large-scale war, and work from there. And actually, we must have a credible, large, flexible, resilient uh, nuclear force in order to do that. And so, so I've argued that um, that actually in having a robust nuclear arsenal is compatible with and in fact demanded by the conditions of just war theory. 
following up on that question, you were talking about how there's a lack of critical thinking. Is that just a byproduct of the post-Cold War era where we expect that we've won, so therefore we can rest on our laurels and we can just relax and not worry about what's going on in the world? Or is there other reasons for that? No, I think that that's right. The thinking is, um, and this again, it comes from this idea that people are constantly evolving and that societies are constantly evolving for the better. This is the progressive ideology. And because of that thinking, many believe that the Cold War era or even this tension between the former Soviet Union and the United States is just over. It's done. And it won't happen again. And so these these large numbers of nuclear weapons simply aren't necessary. Many people believe that World War II was just this horrible, catastrophic war, which it was, but that the United States will never see that kind of war again, and that we're sort of moving down this path in history in which we're becoming a more peaceful people, and, and war like that on that scale to that degree just, just isn't as likely. And so you hear this kind of talk, if you sort of tune your ear to that, you'll notice it. You'll recall during the last presidential election, uh, Governor Romney just got excoriated for saying that, that Russia is one of the United States's biggest uh, geopolitical threats. And President Obama said that was ridiculous and that the Cold War was over. And then, of course, we saw after President Obama won that um, Russia invaded Ukraine, an ally of the United States, and annexed Crimea, uh, among doing, you know, they've they've also done a slew of other things that are um, incredibly provocative and and not not behavior that you'd expect from a country that we no longer uh, would expect sort of tension or an adversarial relationship with. One of the big documents that sort of many people who think about deterrence look to as representing the thoughts of the the Global Zero Movement is this. In fact, the Global Zero Organization put out a study report. Secretary Hagel, in fact, signed on to that report before he became Secretary of Defense. And one of the premises on which the idea that Global Zero, moving down to zero nuclear weapons, shrinking the U.S. nuclear force, et cetera, going from a delivery system of a triad down to a dyad, all of these things. The reason they believe those things are good and wise is because one of their premises was the United States would no longer have this adversary relationship with Russia. And so these large numbers of nuclear weapons just simply don't make sense. And that war with China is simply just beyond the pale and we couldn't possibly imagine it. And therefore, we don't need large numbers of nuclear weapons. So what I try to remind people is that human nature, as understood, of course, by Christians and as understood by the Greek philosophers, is that because of our nature, we're sinful. You know, we can do plenty of good things, but at heart, we're a depraved and sinful race. And so we're not ever going to put war and violence and interest and selfishness behind us, that these are sort of a permanent part of the human condition. And because of that, we should expect other countries to behave in their own interests, and some of those interests are inimical to the interests of the United States of America. And therefore, we should protect ourselves and, and build an offensive force to deter other actors, other state actors, from infringing on the, the interests and the security of the United States of America. You know, but you're right. The problem is this sort of thinking since the Cold War that just sort of war is over. So we can sort of relax a little bit and start looking at other problems like global warming or whatever the... Uh, the hot button, more popular issue is to talk about of the day. Um, but, but war is sort of a, it's a permanent part of the human condition, and so it's better to think about that. And I would argue it's a much more humble position to take, the one that I'm advocating for, which is that we can't know exactly how other actors are going to behave. We cannot predict what alliances are going to form. 
um, and and because we're talking about people and not machines, um, that that they can surprise us. And so the the Russian government can surprise us. The Chinese government can can as well. And so I think it would be foolish to presume simply that they'll never seek to harm the United States and that we can go down to such small numbers of nuclear weapons, um, thereby limiting ourselves. So it really is hubris, I think, to presume that the United States will simply never need to use these weapons weapons again. Following up on that, like going down to the G, what's the phrase you use? The global zero nuclear weapons? Right. So with that... In your article, you talk a lot about the philosophy or the idea of minimum deterrence um, and the corollary of the mutual assured destruction. And so could you give a brief explanation of how that idea developed? And also you mentioned in the article how that changed in the 80s where we moved away from the MAD to uh, actually targeting military facilities and so forth instead of, excuse me, civilian places. So uh, could you explain that a little bit and um, why you would say that is an immoral position? Sure. So so essentially, um, the United States and the Soviet Union, um, we had this this, 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 this concept of mutually assured destruction went like this. We're going to point nuclear weapons at you and your major cities and your people. You're going to point them at us and our major cities and our people. And um, we have a, we we promise that if you launch one at us, we're going to retaliate um, with the full force of our nuclear force, and so thereby destroying not only your own country but the planet. Um, it was it was mutually assured destruction. <clears throat> of course, the acronym is MAD. And we sort of begin to, we move, begin to move away from this idea um, of mutually assured destruction and. Um, Subsequent administrations began saying, "Okay, well, it doesn't—it's not moral to point these horrible weapons at, at people, at cities, and that's called a counter-value strategy. When you when you point your nuclear weapons and your weapons at, at cities, instead, we're going to move to a counter-force targeting strategy, and that meant that we would point our our weapons at at targets, military targets, and that I'd argue is is the right." is the right thing to do, that we should be doing that. But this idea now, the global zero folks and folks who agree with their ideology that nuclear weapons in themselves are bad, they argue that we just simply don't need nuclear weapons. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't, we shouldn't rely on them. We should move away from nuclear deterrence. And so as they argue that we should move down to smaller nuclear weapons, what they're doing is, perhaps unknowingly or unconsciously, sometimes people can argue for things in which they don't really understand the full consequences of their arguments, what they're doing is arguing again for mutually assured destruction. Because if you don't have a large enough force to actually point and point your weapons at target military targets, hardened targets, what those regimes value. You know, many of these countries like North Korea, for instance, I mentioned in my article, the regime leaders don't they don't value their own people. The United States, in fact, I would argue, values North Korean peasants more then the regime leader values those North Korean peasants. So it wouldn't even make sense for us to target them because the North Korean regime doesn't even care about them, so it wouldn't deter them. So instead, the United States seems to have enough nuclear weapons to actually hold those uh, military targets at, at risk, and there's a lot more of them. There's many of them. And so actually moving down to a smaller number of nuclear weapons, a handful of nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons that don't have great precision, uh, nuclear weapons that don't have um, the ability to dial up and dial down nuclear yield, et cetera, really they become just mass, they, just be, they become, once again, counter-value weapons, and we're back to mutually assured destruction. 
And so I would argue it's immoral. It's not, um, it's not in line with just war theory. And because it's not, um, I believe it's actually counter to the character of, of what the United States of America is today. Um, and therefore, uh, threatening that would be incredible. People wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe that a president of the United States would actually uh, target uh, Russian uh, cities. We would, we would in fact, target uh, regime centers or regime targets, et cetera. Um, so so that, that, that's the answer. I mean, we, you know, we, the left, and in fact, these Christian churches as well, I was recently on a panel, and somebody quoted uh, Pope Francis. Um, and, and the person who quoted Pope Francis was president of the Plowshares Fund. The Plowshares Fund is a very fringy arms control organization um, that works with the Obama administration to, to support such foolish things, I would argue, as the Iran deal and, um, and going down to, to global zero. But he quoted Pope Francis because he believed that that, that you know, carries some great moral authority. Um, and I just caution people about that because um, Pope Francis doesn't, if I, if I can say so respectfully, uh, doesn't understand uh, deterrence theory. And in arguing to go down to small numbers of nuclear weapons, you're actually increasing the likelihood of war. And um, you're doing so by, 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 uh, by necessity, targeting cities, because that's what you would have to do with such small numbers of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So the MAD theory kind of developed, if I understand correctly, around the time that we could only be very crude in our delivery of nuclear weapons, and we had to have high yields. Was the, is that correct? We did. We had we had crude crude nuclear weapons. We had many of them, and in fact, this was the time during the the, the height of the Cold War. This was the first time we were really trying to implement deterrence, nuclear deterrence, in a way that that we hadn't um, since since World War II. Um, and so, this was a sort of reaction. The Russians just had so many, and they were threatening to just launch all of them, you know, at the United States. And so the United States did what it could. Again, with nuclear weapons, it's kind of like a giant psychological game, giant chess match. And so responded by saying, if you do that, we'll do the same thing in kind. And that was what was required at the time to just to just um, offer a credible deterrence. But here we are 30, you know, some plus years later, um, and, and countries have continued to develop sophisticated nuclear weapons. The Russians, for instance, are um, they're developing um, hypersonic uh, missiles um, that, that are faster than the speed of sound um, to make a target our um, carriers, etc. They're they're developing. You know, the United States doesn't put multiple warheads on each of our intercontinental ballistic missiles because we believe that's destabilizing. Because the country that we might aim it at or point it at won't know how many are on there. But um, uh, the North, the uh, Russians, MIRV, they they put multiple. Uh, warheads on their ICBMs, so they're developing increased capabilities, um, and so uh, um, the United States, of course, has to has to respond by having an increased sophistication in our in our weapon systems as well. Um, so, so that's what we've seen as as countries have improved, the United States has improved. But we've we've had plenty of time though to be thinking about this, thinking about how to have a credible force. We, we saw the destruction of uh, World War II, the, the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, I certainly would like to never see that happen again. Um, and so the United States has to think very clearly to make sure that our nuclear deterrent strategy isn't the strategy of the Cold War, isn't the strategy um, that we had in World War II, but actually matches 
um, the character of the United States today um, and actually meets the threats that have developed today, the current modern-day threat. I'm not arguing for a buildup of nuclear weapons that we had during the Cold War, but I'm certainly arguing that we should put the brakes on now um, and, and work on sort of modernizing and making sure that our force remains credible. And if I'm reading you correctly, your position would be to have smaller yields on the nuclear weapons or some flexibility on what we can set those yields at, but having enough to target the military and regime positions. Yes, that's okay. exactly right. And so and, and what you'll hear, though, is um, you know, we, we've had varying yields for some time, but, but not all of them. Some of them have very, very high yields. What I, what I have tried to argue is that, for instance, there are new weapon systems are, they're not even new, but they're sort of, they're, they're better versions of the ones that we have today. So they're the same types of weapons, but they are um, adapted. And I've argued that it's a good thing, that, that you should have the ability to dial up or dial down the yield, um, and that you should be able to move down to as much smaller yields to minimize the casualties of civilians who might be around. Now, the Global Zero folks, though, interestingly, and perhaps ironically to some, argue that if we did that, if we did the very thing that I'm proposing, that that would actually increase the likelihood of nuclear war because the United States might actually be tempted to use them. Um, so you can sort of see, though, the paradox in their argument or the hypocrisy in their argument. So what they would argue is that, no, no, the United States has to have high-yield nuclear weapons to deter us, to deter the United States of America from using them. Um, but, of course, if we did that, what country would actually think the United States will use these high-yield nuclear weapons that we know would kill large numbers of civilians? And you see that it takes away their deterrent effect. And so therein lies the paradox. What I am trying to argue is that in order for them to deter, that is to prevent mass casualties, large-scale war, people have to believe that we might, in fact, one day use them. If they believe that we'll never use them, we might as well not have them. Um, and that would be an, an incredibly dangerous situation. So, um, you know, what I'd like to see is that we don't have large-scale war, um, or that if we do have large-scale war, that the United States is prepared to, to um, fight that war on our own terms and win decisively. And so we have to have an arsenal that enables us to do that. One of the things I remember last year when there was a website that released maps where you could test out different types of bombs to see how much destruction they could do. And what really surprised me was how small the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs are compared to what I was expecting, where I think if it was dropped on the White House, the it may not have reached all the way to the Capitol building, which, I mean, to me is a fairly short distance. Um, is that accurate, or the, was it that small? Your question sort of gets to the heart of what nuclear weapons even are. And this was something that they, they really are terror weapons. They are terror weapons. So even even small um, yields carry with them an enormous destructive capability, which is why they're different than conventional and non-nuclear weapons. I was just recently at the State Department um, having a debate on this subject, and I was arguing that, in fact, the Obama administration, even though it is so committed to going down to global zero, really was sort of faced with reality. And even though it went down to smaller numbers with the New START Treaty with the Russians, it wanted to go down by another third. But because Russia was misbehaving, Russia invaded Ukraine, et cetera, President Obama said, we can't. We just, we can't reduce the number of nuclear weapons because nuclear weapons since, since World War II, and then we saw their uh, deterrent effect during the Cold War, we just, we can't risk 
destabilizing the situation even more by going down a smaller number of nuclear weapons. And so he stopped. And I praised that with the State Department. I praised the fact that the, that the Obama administration sort of realized that reality got in way of their ideological agenda. And um, the other folks on the, on the panel with me took great, um, <laughs> they had a great problem with that. They, they accused it was Republicans, it was, et cetera, it was the um, military-industrial complex that, that prevented the Obama administration from going down to smaller numbers of nuclear weapons. And it just simply wasn't the case. There's great bipartisan support that we needed to just modernize once we have. Um, but it goes back, again, uh, to your point about these are terror weapons. They carry with them a much greater psychological effect than non-nuclear weapons. And so that's why they have such a massive deterrent capability. But, you know, I don't have the numbers off my head for different yields and what they do. But, for instance, a nuclear yield is probably essentially what will be required to get to the bottom of these deeply buried, hardened facilities in China, in Russia, in North Korea. Um, you need to have that destructive capability to even to get to and destroy what those regimes value most, which is their own nuclear capability. But again, yeah, the new cruise missile that we would like to develop has a much more precise, it's very precise, and it has a yield that would make it a, a better, more effective warfighting weapon rather just one of these dumb bombs that you drop over a city, which is why the left opposes it, because they think that that would be a tempting weapon for the United States to use. I'm not being flip about the you know, massive destructive capability of these weapons. It's, it's huge. Um, but to intentionally target civilians and to use very large-scale, um, large-yield nuclear weapons that can take out um, a whole country or, um, you know, that, that, that's just simply not, not what the United States should be investing in. You also spoke about how Russia is planning on using nuclear weapons to de-escalate a military situation. So could you explain how that strategy would work for them? Sure. You, you can sort of tell the sort of strategy that countries might have by the types of weapons that they develop and invest in, and also the, the language and rhetoric and military doctrine that just comes out officially from, from their officials. Again, I mentioned the Merving, having multiple warheads per ICBM. You have those to take out large numbers of, of military facilities or, or uh, weapons. That's why you have those. It's very destabilizing. And so they started investing in these, but then it started to look as though the Russians were actually building weapon systems to use as a first strike. In other words, to use them first, not just as a means of just having you know, the bare necessity of what you need, you might need in order to respond if you're attacked first. But it started to look, they're really investing in, um, in, in very destabilizing uh, nuclear weapons. And then what the Russians did was they, they came out in their military doctrine and made it very unclear about whether or not they would be against using nuclear weapons in a purely conventional conflict. And they essentially, they, they said that they would be. They'd be willing to use off nuclear weapons in a purely conventional conflict in order to, in their mind, de-escalate the situation and, and win the conflict on terms most favorable to the Russian Federation. Um, and they're specifically talking about vis-a-vis -vis NATO. The NATO alliance, of course, as you know, Article 5 of the treaty requires that the United States treat any military use of force against a NATO ally as though it was a military use of force against the United States of America, because we would be required to go to their defense. And so we care very much what Russia says about using their weapons against a NATO ally. Um, and, and what the Russians were saying was, 
they're sort of tapping into this squeamishness that the West, um, that our, their allies, the United States has about nuclear weapons. The Russians simply aren't squeamish about nuclear weapons. And so they've said, look, if we have this conventional conflict with Poland or with Latvia or with you know, NATO allies and the, the, the Baltic states, if, the, if Russia decides to go in and, and do to one of them what it did to Ukraine and essentially got away with it. But NATO just simply in the United States and with NATO just wouldn't be willing to use nuclear weapons. So Russia would come in and, and, and simply just use one of these uh, nuclear weapons and then we would just cry uncle, cry mercy. And then, and then Russia would end the conflict on its own terms. It's sort of this idea of escalating in order to de-escalate. Now, my response to that is they are sorely mistaken that the United States of America would not uh, respond by simply crying uncle if, if the Russians were to use a nuclear weapon, um, even though our NATO allies were using conventional weapons, for instance, to defend off a, a Russian invasion. And that the United States should be very clear about that. That should the Russian Federation use a nuclear weapon against one of our allies, that we would make sure that they understood that was a very bad decision and we would use nuclear force in response. And that, that's sort of what deterrence is. And it reminds me, at the, at the State Department event I was just in, somebody from the audience said, you know, one of the, they wanted myself and the other two panelists to respond, if an enemy used a nuclear weapon against one of our allies, do we actually think the United States would use a nuclear weapon in response? And then we were told to actually just be very brief with our response. And my response was immediately, I should hope so. And the other two people, of course, you know, one of them said something like, well, it depends. And then the third one said, my answer would be the opposite of Rebecca's, which is the I should hope not. But you can see, to say I should hope not is, is essentially just telling the Russians, have at it, because we are not going to respond with nuclear force. And, and so part of the deterrence is, is a large measure of it is psychology. But, uh, but as Herman Kahn, um, the great uh, theorist, uh, nuclear theorist, um, he, he had, had some great line about you know, that the best way to actually be believable is to mean it. And so the United States should mean it. We should actually say, oh, no, we would respond that way. And then uh, instilling that confidence in our enemies and our adversaries um, actually will prevent them from making that terrible calculation to begin with. And I believe you also in one of the other articles have written about how using very massive, large, conventional weapons would not have that same terror effect if Russia was to try to use a nuclear strike in order to de-escalate a uh, military invasion or some other type of conventional conflict. Do we have the right type of nuclear weapons to respond in kind to a, a provocation like that? So we do is the short answer, but we should deploy them a little bit closer to where Russia is, given Russia's provocations. And so just to provide a little bit of context for our listeners, Russia's not just, I mean, Russia's investing in their nuclear arsenal. Um, we know that. They've invaded the country. They are now undermining U.S. efforts in Syria. They are, so they're meddling in the Middle East. I mean, they've really become bold um, over the past two terms of the Obama administration. Um, but they've also threatened to use nuclear force uh, in response to purely conventional um, plans, deployments. The United States plans on deploying a defensive system in Poland, for instance, and the Russians have threatened to use nuclear force to, to take that out. Um, so they, they, they're flying nuclear-capable aircraft into the airspace of our NATO allies, into Japanese airspace, into American airspace. 
So really, the provocations and the aggression has gone way up on the nuclear piece with the Russians. And so because of that, what I've argued is the U.S. should be doing more war games in NATO. We should make sure that we've got um, uh, nuclear, the right nuclear weapons, and there's a mix of that would have to be determined by our military, but the, the right mix would be close enough to, to Russia to actually let them see that we're serious, and, and should they use nuclear force, that we'll, that we'll use nuclear force. Um, and so the United States should be moving sort of that direction. We really haven't been doing that so much. We've done some wargaming exercises just to see that, you know, just to show them that the United States is, is still uh, protective of NATO, et cetera. But we really should be doing more of that because the Russians are doing them. Thanks again to Rebecca Heinrichs for speaking with us at the Provcast. And thank you for listening. And also thank you to Joseph Russell for putting all of this together and producing it. We couldn't do it without him. We'll also be posting some of the articles and reports Rebecca has written both for Providence and also some of her work at Hudson onto the Providence website's page for the podcast. Be sure to tune in again next week as we have the second episode with Rebecca Heinrichs, the second part of this discussion about about nuclear weapons and deterrence and some of the nuts and bolts of how that would actually work.